The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Down to verse 15. Then the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend it and watch over it. But the Lord God warned, actually the Lord God commanded him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Um, first off, uh, guarding your garden. Uh, it's interesting, uh, when God, in verse 8, it says that he created this garden, God planted it, he set Adam and Eve in it, and he told Adam and Eve they were to tend the garden and keep it. This translation says they were to work in the garden and, and, and keep it. Um, what uh, what is exactly is that about? It's interesting. The word that's used that's translated in many translations to keep or to to maintain uh, in verse fifteen is actually the word uh, to guard. Okay, throughout Scripture, this word is used uh, to to guard something, and I really believe that here is it's it's also its its main meaning. Uh, they were just to look after it, but they were to watch over it carefully or keep it. The word is used most commonly in the Old Testament in connection with the commandments, where it says to keep the commandments. It's this exact word. And the idea was to guard or watch over that you're careful to obey the command, to guard, to protect yourself so you don't make a mistake and walk down the wrong path or make a bad choice. Um, they were to guard something in the garden. That's kind of a... a kind of a crazy thought when you think about the garden and think about paradise. What, what was the danger in paradise? What were they to guard or protect the garden from? Uh, you know, God had given the animals really as man's friends. And especially in the garden in paradise, they're pre presented and pictured as, as man's friends, right? They're not threatening, you know, he's not, they're bringing the animals, he's naming them, he's not saying, you know, watch out for the bears, they'll eat you. Uh, at that point, we don't know how it worked, but the lions and bears and all that seemed to be more tame, and at least whatever else they were eating, they weren't eating people yet. Right? So, so there's no threat from the animals. Okay? There was abundance there. It wasn't like the animals were going to come eat all their fruit. You know? I don't think God's saying, you know, watch out for those giraffes, they'll eat all your fruit. I don't think that's it. Okay? Um, so the threat wasn't the animals. Uh, there were no enemies. You know, Adam was to populate the garden from his own family, uh, given a sinless paradise without selfishness and fighting. Uh, you can't really vision or imagine that there would be some enemy trying to break in and steal the fruit, okay, or take it. Uh, God did not put a wall around the garden, okay? There's no, there's no threat from some enemy invasion. So what were they to protect it from? What was the great danger? Well, of course, you know, we know chapter 3, that the danger wasn't outside, was it? We know that the real danger in the garden was in them, was in, was in the garden. 
And in fact, it's significant and interesting that uh, the tree of the life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says, were planted in the middle of the garden. Could be translated in the midst of, but I like this picture of in the middle. In the middle. Uh, what was the real danger that they had to guard or protect against? Well, it was nothing external. It was nothing that threatened the garden from outside. The only thing that threatened the security of the garden was Adam and Eve. Now, we may think, you know, well, actually, what about the serpent? Wasn't the serpent the source of all the trouble or the tree? Uh, but the reality is that those things were not, in the end, the trouble. Satan, or, well, the serpent, whoever the serpent was, we'll get into that next week, um, a couple of weeks. Uh, the serpent uh, tempted them. There's some danger in that. But the real problem was not the serpent. Okay, the tree was there as a constant source of temptation, unfair as that may have been. That was not the real problem. The real danger that they had to protect themselves against was within their own heart. Okay, within their own heart. And even though they did not have a sinful nature, the, they had not yet broken any of God's commands or laws. God knew. God knew the potential danger that awaited them. And so he, he warns them, he commands them, he says, you have got to guard this garden. Uh, and, and, and what I believe, you know, what he's really saying to them is you need to guard your own heart. Okay, the, the, the danger that lies ahead of you lies within. Not just within the garden, but really within, within their heart. That there was trouble lurking even then, even on the day of creation. God knew the potential for disaster. And he knew that there was trouble lurking and that the threat was in, in them itself. Um, and, and the reality is that God created man uniquely with free choice. Okay? Man, unlike all the other creatures, could choose to obey or not. And that was a huge and dangerous thing. And so God says to them, guard carefully what I have given to you. Uh, all of us have been given a garden. And you know, while Adam and Eve lost the garden... Uh, through sin uh, and, and were cast out of the garden, Jesus in his work on the cross has really regained for us all that the garden represented. So we now have, through Christ and through his death and resurrection, through his blood that was shed for us, we now have access to everything that Adam and Eve lost. So when we talk about the garden, we're talking about for us something that's very much a present reality in Christ. We can have the kind of relationship with God that Adam and Eve were intended and designed to have. But the reality is true for us, just like it was for them, that uh, this, this garden, the secret place of meeting with God for us, is at great risk and great danger. And you may ask, well, where is this garden? Well, I really believe it is the inner man of our heart and soul. God has given each of us the capacity not to turn outward to the world and to things, but to turn inward in our heart and soul, and there meet and find and connect with Him. And that's our secret garden, our secret place, our space to meet and know God. Uh, Jesus speaks of it in Re Revelation chapter 3 in these words. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Right? Well, what is that about? Well, we use that a lot as a picture of salvation, but it's not about salvation, is it? It's about Jesus coming into this, the secret place of our heart and soul and communing in fellowship with us. 
Okay, it is this garden. It's this place where we can know Him and meet with Him face to face, commune and fellowship with Him, where He will share a meal of communion and fellowship with us. Um, but like Eden, we need to guard this place. Uh, we need to cultivate it and nurture it. We need to water it so that it will flourish and grow. And we also must guard it. Um, the reality is the same danger lurks in us that lurked for Adam and Eve. In that God has given this garden, this place of communion and fellowship, but it's so easy to lose it or to just let the weeds grow up and uh, turn it into anything but a garden. Um, we need to guard carefully our relationship with God. Uh, it is uh, bought with a great price through Christ, but it is so fragile in our daily experience of it. Okay, how many of you would agree with that? Would say that, yeah, that's right. You know, walking with God just isn't all that easy, right? It's hard. Why is it hard? Because it's something that can easily be lost. You know, one of my favorite stories from uh, history is um, about the story about the Hope Diamond. I've talked about it here before because I really like the story. But it's this massive, huge diamond. I've seen it. It's at the Smithsonian. And it ended up at the Smithsonian because a diamond broker actually bought it uh, a long time ago, back in the 40s, I believe. Uh, and he donated it to the Smithsonian. Now, it's estimated to being worth something like $300 million U.S. Okay, so it's a very valuable stone. But the, one of the funny parts of the story is that when he bought this diamond and decided to donate it to the Smithsonian, he called up the museum, would you like this multi-million dollar diamond for your exhibit? Yeah, sure. Okay, I'll put it in the mail. He got out a cardboard box, put the diamond in a plain cardboard box, and mailed it through U.S. Postal Service to the museum. Okay? And I'm just thinking, this is like, you know, every thief's dream, you know. All I have to do is knock over the, the mailman. He's not even armed, right? And that's what he does. He sends it, this priceless treasure, through the mail. Well, it made it, thankfully. Uh, and, you know, I just wonder if, and it's like, I don't know if he just had so much wealth or money, it just didn't matter to him, I don't know. But, you know, I just wonder how many of us have this priceless treasure in our relationship with Christ, but we really don't value it. And we are careless with it, kind of like that guy was with the diamond. Uh, just careless with it. Do we guard it as if it were the greatest treasure in our life? Is it of such value and importance to us that we, we guard it with our very life? Uh, you know, I hear all the time, and I say it myself, uh, you know, I would just love to spend more time with God, but I just get so busy, right? Life gets so full. I would love to spend more time and have prayer retreats or just have time away with God or walk with God or pray, read the Bible. But, you know, life just gets so busy. How many, well, don't raise your hand, but you know, we've all said that, haven't we? I've said it. I've lived it, right? Well, let's be very honest with ourselves, okay? I want, you, I want, to, I want us all to practice telling the truth, okay? Is the reason we don't have time with God because we are too busy? No. Okay, I want you to tell yourself, I don't have time with God because it's not a matter of being too busy. Okay, it's never a matter of too busy. It is always a matter of how much you treasure it. It is always a matter of priorities. Now, this is what we need to do. We need to start, you know, we may not change, but we've got to at least tell the truth. So this is the truth. We need to start saying this. God, I would love to spend more time with you, but the reality is you're just not that important. 
that's the truth, right? I'm not guarding that time with you because it's just not important to me. That's the truth. If, if God were really that important to us, if it was really that much of a treasure, if we really valued the garden, we would guard it with our life. We would protect that time. We would tr- protect that space. We would protect that relationship. Right? So the next time you're tempted to say, you start getting those words, oh, I'm just so bit, just stop right there with the word busy. And just back up, rewind the tape and go, okay, the truth is, it's just not that important. It's just not that important to me. Right? That's the reality. Uh, if it were that important, if, if the tree were, and then the garden were that important to Adam and Eve, they would have guarded it more carefully. Right? Um, the bottom line is, with Adam and Eve, the, the guarding the garden came down to their own responsibility. It was their job to guard it. Now, later, of course, when they fall, you know, they got all kinds of excuses. You know, Adam, yeah, it's that, that wife you gave me. It was her fault. Eve, you know, it's, it's the serpent. But the message here is simply this. God said, you guard what I have given you. It is your job and responsibility to protect it. Same thing is true for you and I. It is your job to guard that relationship God has given you and purchased with his own blood. He has handed it to you. He has handed back to us the garden. It is your job and responsibility to guard it. You cannot blame it on anybody else if you lose it. Okay? You can't come up with lame excuses about being busy or so-and-so needed this or whatever. Right? It is your job and it is your responsibility and it's your duty. So the bottom line is, the real danger is me. The real danger of losing and, and messing up my relationship with God is just me, nothing else, right? No one else. My relationship is between me and Him, and my responsibility to maintain it and carry it on rests with me. Now, of course, uh, we can't do it by ourselves, and God has graciously given us lots of resources and help, namely, most significantly, His Holy Spirit. Uh, and we need His help. But it is nonetheless something we must guard. We must protect. We must look after. So we need to guard the garden. Secondly, uh, the law of the garden. Uh, He says you you need to tend it. You need to guard it. Uh, And then the Lord commanded him in the New Living. It says warn, which is just a horrible translation. It is a warning, but it is specifically a command. Okay, It is a command. He says, I command you to do two things. Positively, you need to eat up. Okay? He says, eat up. He says, from every single tree in the garden, you can eat freely. Okay? I love that part of the command. A lot of times we see commands as negative, right? We see commands as only the things we can't do, but that's not actually true. Much of God's command and much of what He asks of us is positive. He says, you are free to eat all you want. I don't know how many trees there were in the garden, hundreds, thousands, I don't know. But God says, enjoy them all. Take your pick. You know, find the ones you like, find some, whatever. Just enjoy them all. But there is one tree out of all these hundreds, thousands, whatever, there is one tree that you may not eat of. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, 
why does God, why is it required that God have commands? Why is a relationship with him uh, need commands and rules? Now, what is this with the rule thing? Uh, probably most of us don't like, well, you know, I would say all of us don't like rules. Who likes rules, right? Um, most of, I, I know I spend great amounts of time and energy sidestepping rules, avoiding rules, rewriting rules to my own benefit. Why does God have rules? Well, I don't know if I know all the answers to that question, but one significant answer is this, that it really does define the kind of relationship that God would have with man in the garden. And it really defines the kind of experience or relationship that we will have with God. It is a relationship of a supreme creator being who has right and authority to rule the world and to rule us. Right? That's bottom line. Uh, our relationship with God is just not as a peer, as a buddy, as somebody we can kind of take or leave. Experiencing and knowing God requires that He be God. That He be the supreme creator uh, authority over all the universe and over our life. We want to, and the problem is, see, we want to experience and know God on different terms, right? We want to change the rules of the relationship so that we can bring God down to a level where we can kind of control Him. Where we can manage God. Uh, where we can um, have a co-equal relationship with Him. And the truth is, God makes it very clear, not only here, but through us of Scripture, that to experience and know God, we must be enter into a relationship with Him where He is king and we are subject. We are servant. He, we, he is master, we are slave. He is father, we are child. You cannot know and experience God outside of that context. God will not be known. He will not be worshipped. He will not be related to otherwise. And that's a lot of what the command is about. God makes it very clear in the garden that He's blessed them. He's giving them all this stuff. He wants to have a relationship with them. He wants to be intimate, personal, and deep. But it would be on these terms alone. God must be God. And we must be subject to Him. And to know Him and to walk with Him, we must agree to those terms. We must enter into that relationship on those terms and in that basis. Um, you know, Jesus put it this way. Uh, in, in, in John, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay? And there is something about our relationship with God where our love and our obedience go hand in hand. The way that Adam and Eve would connect with and know and ultimately would love God was going to be through their obedience to His commands. So God put the tree in the garden because He wanted to test the condition or place of their love, okay, of their heart. Now that is tricky because with man, man became was created as a free being in the universe. You know, God says, "Don't do this," but if you do, okay. Now that if is huge because in that if is is for us a condition that no other created creature in this world has. Okay, to no other animal does God say, but if you choose not to, right? Okay, God says to the stars, let there be, you know, let your light shine. There's stars and there's light. God says, let there be a sun and let the sun be a sign for the day. There's a sun. The sun doesn't say, you know, I'm tired. It's, it's just too hot. This job, this job is too hot. I don't want to do this anymore. Right? No, it just obeys, right? But man alone can say, no, I don't think so. Right? I'm not going to do that. 
We alone have free will. And of course the question is, uh, you know, the question is, why did God give us that kind of freedom? Why would God do that? Why would God give us free will? Why would he give us choices? Why would he give us the temptation to do evil when the consequences are so devastating? Can you ever wonder that question? You ever wrestled with that one? Well, I don't know all the answers, but I do know one part of the answer is this. That God wanted a relationship with us that was uniquely different than all the other created creatures. God wanted a relationship with us where there would be a free and willing exchange of love on our part. You know, a good picture of this is, is marriage. And there are places in the world still today where they practice arranged marriages, right? And so in an arranged marriage, you don't get to freely pick and choose uh, who you marry. And in those cultures, the big debate, like in India right now, the big debate is between arranged marriages and what they call marriage for love, right? Marriage for love. Well, what is marriage for love? What well, is that you fall in love with somebody and you choose to marry them because you love them, right? That's a big deal in the churches there. You get in that debate, who? <laughs> watch out, right? Well, I'm not going to get into the debate, but I want you to look at the two pictures, okay? Uh, if you are, if you, if, imagine you're single, okay? Or if you are single, you don't have to imagine. You are single. And um, what kind of marriage would you like? Would you want somebody to just designate for you your partner and say, here's the person, be married, and you know, if you happen to love each other, that's a plus. If not, I hope you can survive each other. Or would you like to do like happens in all the movies where you meet some guy or some girl and your heart races and they're nice to you and you're nice to them and, and you feel all these wonderful emotions called love and you feel yourself falling off a cliff. And somebody says, no, you're not falling off a cliff, you're falling in love. And you choose to spend your life with this person, right? Which would you want? Well, you know, in Western culture, we would all choose plan B. Now, interestingly, in other cultures, they may not. But there's something different about a relationship where you entered into it freely out of love, out of even passion, out of free choice to be with that person. Right? Now, I'm not saying in other relationships that they don't have love, but it's a whole different starting point. God wanted plan B in his relationship with us. Right? He wanted us to choose him freely and to enter in a relationship with him that was free love, where we loved him because we wanted to love him. Right? That's what he called us to. And to do that, it required free will and choice. Right? The only way there could be free will and choice is if God put the tree in the garden. Right? God didn't put the tree in the garden. God gave no command. There's really no free will. There really is no choice. So it's critical and crucial that in our relationship with God, there be options, there be free choice, there be free will. Uh, it is the way God created us, and it's the way God intended for our relationship with him to unfold. Um, and he does, this through, he does this through the tree of knowledge. Okay, his plan to unfold our, both our free will and to give us the option for choice is to put in the garden uh, this tree he called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, this in itself is also kind of a weird thing. What is the tree? Uh, 
why is it called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Isn't knowledge a good thing? Why would God forbid gaining knowledge? Right? Is this some picture of God wanting only stupid people? You know, I was like, I don't want you getting too smart thinking for yourselves, you know, because that's dangerous. Is that what this is about? What does this mean? What is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And why is it so bad or so dangerous? Well, uh, the tree itself is not bad or evil. And in fact, the tree itself is probably quite neutral. And what gives the tree its power as a power as a tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not its specific fruit, but really is its 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 choice. Okay, God could have picked any tree. He could have picked a rock. He could have picked anything. He could have said, "Don't drink from this well." Uh, what gave it the power was that it became a command and a choice. Right? That's what gives it its power. Well, there's two things about the tree that. Um, that are significant. First of all, uh, God was forbidding access to a certain kind of knowledge, not knowledge in general. Okay, God wasn't saying, I don't want you to be smart, I don't want you to know things. Okay, he created them with minds, created us with minds to think. But God was forbidding them from a certain kind of knowledge that would be gained through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The word that's used there for knowledge is um, one of two words that can be used. There's a word that can be used to know something by lecture or by revelation. So in other words, you go to class and your teacher tells you things and explains things and you gain knowledge through that information, through that, that instruction. Right? That's one kind of knowledge. But that's not what's used here. The word that's used here is the gaining knowledge through personal experience, okay? through personal encounter, through experiential um, experience, through experiential knowledge. Uh, to illustrate it later in, in chapter 4, it says that Adam knew his wife, right? And she got pregnant, right? The same exact word. Now, it, you know, Adam did not get pregnant by taking a correspondence course on wives or marriage. Or Adam didn't get pregnant anyway. <laughs> Eve did. <laughs> okay. Eve did not get pregnant by taking a correspondence course on marriage. Okay. She got pregnant because Adam had a hands-on lesson, okay, in intimate marriage. He had a hands-on experience, all right, and as a result, Eve got pregnant. Okay, that's the kind of knowledge it's talking about here. Well, what God's saying is that through this tree, Adam and Eve would have the option of knowing about evil through first-hand personal experience. See, by giving them a choice, by disobeying, Adam and Eve would have first-hand encounter or experience with evil. Okay, not because they heard about it or learned about it because it was revealed to them, but because they experienced it. Uh, all of God's commands flow out of his character and his nature. And it's important to understand this, too. God's commands are not arbitrary or just random. Okay, God didn't just randomly say, um, just don't eat some tree because, I don't know, just don't, right? God's commands are not arbitrary. God's commands flow out of his own character and nature and reveal his purpose and will in the world. So in other words, God never commands something that's not true of himself. Right? Well, what does this have to do with the tree? Could God not eat of the tree? You know, I thought God could do anything. Well, God can't do anything. God is limited and restricted by his own character and nature. And here's the truth. God... Does not, God knows evil. God knows good. He knows all there is to know. But God did not gain his knowledge through personal experience of evil. Okay? God never tried out evil and decided, oh, that was a bad thing. I'm not going to do that again. Okay? 
God's knowledge and experience of evil is, uh, is not through experience. And he intended that uh, to be reflected in the life of Adam and Eve. He says, I don't want you to know evil by choosing evil and by touching it. All right? So the tree becomes a test ground. And if they stay away from it, God would reveal about good and evil in other ways. But they were not to experience evil through personal encounter. Secondly, a lot of people see in this image really the picture of or a reference to wisdom. That God was saying, I don't want you to gain wisdom through this tree. And it really is a picture or an idea of wisdom as distinguishing right and wrong. But by eating the tree, man would gain or practice human wisdom, not godly wisdom. In other words, when man chose to eat of the tree, they were making up their own rules about right and wrong. Okay, instead of saying, God, I trust that you know what's best for me, instead he says, you know, I'm going to make up my own rules about right and wrong, good and bad. Right? And quite frankly, God, I think you're confused, and I don't think this is a problem. And I'm going to, in my own self-will and self-governing, decide for myself what is right and wrong, what's good and bad. Okay? And God says that's not allowed. You are not given freedom as human beings to generate your own moral code. Okay? Now, we've all been created as moral beings. In other words, we know the difference between right and wrong. Uh, in the garden, they were not given the freedom or right to be moral beings apart from God's instruction or command. And this has great relevance and importance for us in our world. And it's, and it's this. Uh, if you ask a unsaved, unbelieving friend, if they're going to go to heaven, most of them will say what? I hope so, right? I, or yeah, sure. Right? Most of them, I don't know very many people that are pretty convinced they're going to hell. Right? You talk to people, you're going to go to heaven? Yeah, I, th I think so, right? What's their basis? Right? Well, if they're not a believer, it's not Jesus, right? It's not Jesus. What's the basis for their decision? What's that? I'm a good person, right? I'm a good person. Who's not a good person, right? right? I've also never heard anybody say, you know, I'm just a wretch. I'm a wretch who deserves to go to hell, okay? Because those people are already saved, right? <laughs> they already figured it out, right? So people are unbelievers. They believe they're a good person who's destined for heaven on the basis of their goodness, right? Well, here's the deal. You, know, you go back to the garden, you go back to the tree, and God says, sorry, that's not allowed. Okay? You can't be just a moral person and be in relationship with me. Okay? Being moral, being a good person is not enough. Okay? And there's a huge difference. And here's what we've got to understand for our own personal lives. There's a huge difference between being a good person and being obedient. Totally different things. Right? You know, in, in Buddhism... To be honest, there's a lot of people who take Buddhism seriously, who take it seriously. I mean, there's a lot who are just casual Buddhists, but hardcore monks who really are trying and pursuing with all their being a life of holiness, quite honestly, are much better than I am. Okay? They work at it much harder. They're much more diligent. And in many levels, they are probably a better person. Okay? Uh, if they take it seriously, they're not nearly as materialistic. They're not nearly as fat. <laughs> they don't eat as much. Uh, they exercise great discipline to be good. 
will that win them merit and favor with God? Well, God said no, because that's eating the tree. That's inventing your own moral code, but it's not obedience. Because there's no Buddhist monk who's obeying God. Okay, they are not in a personal relationship with the living God where he is instructing and guiding and leading them, and they are following the true and living God. They are just simply trying to be good on their own terms by their own idea. And they may achieve great goodness, but that is nothing like being obedient. Another great example are the Pharisees. Were the Pharisees good people? Many of them were incredibly good in their own eyes. Right? The rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he says, um, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you know, keep the commandments. He says, I have. I have kept all the commandments. I have been a good person. And Jesus said, there's only one thing you lack. And Jesus, as King of kings and Lord of lords, did what? He gave him a command. Go sell everything you own and come follow me. And what happened? He could not do it. You see, he could be a good person. He could not obey. He could not follow Jesus. Right? And in our, our own lives, the goal and pursuit of our life is never to be good. Right? And sadly, too many Christians get completely derailed on this one. We think that God has called us to be good people. Okay? Well, he's already proven, you know, he's already proven that's the whole point of the whole law, is you can't be good people. You blew that one. All right? Don't even go there. All right? Let's give up on that plan. That's why the law is set aside. The law was given as a teacher to show us how we can't be good people. So give up. All right? But what God has called us to do is what? Follow Him and walk in obedience. Right? That's what God demands of us. And we experience God and we experience relationship with Him not by being good people, but by walking in obedience with Him in, in living relationship. All right? You see the difference? So, so many Christians are trying to keep a bunch of rules... Uh, that they know Christians are supposed to do. Go to church, give, pray a lot, whatever. Be nice to people, smile when you don't feel like it. Um, not punch the guy in the nose when you really would like to. We, we follow all these rules thinking that this is what God wants of us. And all the while, Jesus is saying, would you just follow me? Would you just walk in obedience to my voice and my word? Right? Totally different thing. Uh, Jesus did not say, if you love me, you'll keep all my rules. He says, if you love me, you will obey my voice. And what is my command? You'll obey my commandments uh, to love and follow me, to love your brothers. Uh, it's much more difficult to follow uh, than to keep rules. Well, finally, he says, that's the command. And then he gives the clear consequences of it. He says, uh, the day you eat of it, if you eat of its fruit, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay? This is serious stuff. Okay, God is not messing around here. And these are pretty hard words. The day you eat, you will die. Uh, that's caused theologians and scholars a lot of problems because we know that the day they ate of it, they did not die. Right? They lived another like 900 years. Okay? That's not what I would call immediate death. Right? Uh, what does that mean? Well, there's three... Three or more options. One, it could mean there's an idiom in Hebrew that means the day you eat can mean the certainty of something. Okay, so it could have been could be translated, you will certainly surely die. Okay, it's it's going to happen. It's a certainty. That's one option. Second option, uh, it could be translated with the idea that the day you eat of it on that day you are doomed to die. 
Okay, so on that day, judgment has fallen, and, and you've been sentenced to death. Now, the death sentence may not pass for a number of years, but you, you are doomed on that day to die. Uh, a third option would be that, that Adam, and Eve, Adam and Eve and did die that day spiritually, that they lost their relationship with God. They lost that close, intimate, personal connection. Spiritually, they died immediately. And the physical death was something that followed much later. Uh, I'll let you take your pick. I don't really know. The bottom line, it doesn't matter. The New Testament makes it very clear that the wages of sin is death. Adam died. It may have taken a while. He died. All of his children died. His grandchildren died. Up to present day, you and I will die. Okay, the wages of sin is death. Death is a certainty. It's part of our life. None of us can escape it. It is a judgment that is sure and certain and true. On top of that, uh, sin does bring death at many levels. Okay? Death and dying isn't just about our bodies uh, stopping. Uh, sin brings death to everything it touches. Uh, relationships, you know, when, you, when we bring sin into a relationship, what does it do to the relationship? It kills it. Okay? It kills our relationship with God. Sin enters into a marriage kills the relationship, damages the relationship. In a friendship, in a work relationship, sin kills it, right? In partnerships, you know, if there's sin, it ends in separation. If it's not resolved and fixed, there's separation, there is fighting, there is fear, there's war. Uh, death, uh, sin brings disease, right? Um, you know, disease is not only spread through sin, but without sin, there wouldn't be the spread of disease. For example, uh, sexually transmitted diseases, AIDS. Um, if people followed God's law in terms of sexual morality, it wouldn't be spreading so rampantly, right? It brings death. Terrible accidents, drunk driving kills. Uh, cheating and cutting corners kills. Uh, buildings collapse when people cheat the system, right? And try to cut corners and people die. And, planes crash. All this stuff brings death, right? So it is a real and present reality in our life. Sin does kill, and it doesn't just bring physical death, but it kills our relationships. It kills lots of stuff in our life. And it's true for us just as well. Even as believers who have been washed and cleansed by sin, sin still has consequences. Right? Now we're forgiven, we are washed, but if we don't deal with sin in our life, if we continue on dealing living with sin, practicing sin, walking in, in disobedience, significant things happen in our relationship with God. And more importantly, significant, significant things happen within us. Let me ask you another question while we're on all these hard questions that I can't answer. Um, why was this judgment so severe? You know, think about this. You know, it's, it's about eating a silly piece of fruit, all right, why couldn't God say, I'll give you three chances, you know, three strikes and you're out? No, I mean, it's the first try. These people didn't know anything. They're brand new on planet Earth. They don't have a history. They don't have a context. They have no idea what's ahead of them. They have no idea what they're about to just throw down the drain, right? And God says, one try and you're out, okay? Why is it so severe? Why, is, why couldn't have God said, you to the tree, I'm going to slap your hands, or, you know, you have to stand during recess or something. 
You have to write 100 times, I will not eat of the fruit of the tree. Okay, why death? Death. Total separation from God, totally losing everything God had created. Why so much? Well, on the one hand, there's a couple of problems we have in, in understanding this. And it's really easy for us to see that God somehow is overreacting. Well, one of our problems is that we see punishment in terms of how a sin affects us as a victim and our retribution for that sin. So, for example, uh, you know, if somebody breaks my, my window, kids playing baseball, breaks my window, okay, you've got to buy me a new window. It's a little punishment because I was affected in a small way. But if you kidnap my child and brutally murder my child, I want severe judgment because you have cost me severe pain, right? And that's kind of the framework that we see judgment in. Well, we transpose that onto God, and we think that somehow God is like that. That God dishes out judgment based on how it affects him personally, right? And we see, and it seems like, well, God, you know, you're kind of getting carried away here. I mean, they ate a little piece of fruit. What are you getting so worked up about this for? You know, you're kind of overreacting, God? Did it really hurt you that much? You see, we misunderstand what judgment is and what God is. Sin never affects God. Okay, God is never victimized by us. Okay? God isn't going, oh, I'm just so angry and they have hurt me so badly. Okay? As if God could be affected by our sin. Okay? God does not need us. God existed fine without us and he could exist otherwise without us. So Adam and Eve's sin, what they lost in the garden, did not in any way affect God. So his judgment isn't based on how it affected God personally. Right? Second problem uh, is that we, we look at judgment and the effects of sin as something that's imposed on us outwardly. Okay, we have this notion that God imposed this kind of random arbitrary judgment outwardly that had nothing to do with us inwardly. But that again is misunderstanding the effects of sin and, and the real cause of death. Here's the deal. Uh, God is not stating here something random or arbitrary that he imposed. Okay? He's stating a spiritual law of the universe. Okay? He, he's just telling them, look, this is what happens. It's like gravity. Okay? He could have said, you know, gravity, there's a tall cliff. If you jump off the tall cliff, you will die. Okay? It's not judgment. It's not me punishing you. Okay? It's just the reality of how the universe works. Well, just as there's physical laws of the universe in the same way there are spiritual laws of the spiritual universe. And God is just stating simply here, look, if you disobey, it changes something in you and it changes something in our relationship that cannot be reversed. Okay? It is a reality, an inward reality in human beings. When you sin, it changes you. No longer would they be a people who were free to love and serve God. By eating of the tree, Adam was showing his true character as one who would not follow God, would not yield to God's sovereign lordship over his life, who instead would choose to rule and govern his own life. See, that's what the command and the tree are about. Uh, while we're on hard questions, you know, the, the last hard question, why, why did God put the tree in the garden? Why did God put such a temptation there? 
Well, we've answered that in some ways. It's, it's about his love relationship with us. He wants to enter into a relationship with free beings who have free will. Um, secondly, it, it, it was a necessary test of their faith. Uh, were Adam and Eve willing to trust and believe that God's plan was better than their own? That's the question. Uh, were they willing to trust that God was good, was trustworthy, and could be submitted and surrendered to. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it was a clear declaration that they did not trust or were willing to put their life under God. And that's why the relationship was broken. God can only be in a relationship, a right relationship with His created beings if He's God and we are His servants. Adam and Eve declared by eating of the tree that they absolutely were not going to be under God. They were going to be self-governed and self-ruled. Right? And when we sin, we are doing exactly the same thing. We're saying, God, you don't know. I don't trust you. I am going to be self-willed and self-governed. I don't need your help. Well, how can you experience God when you make a statement to Him like that? When you turn your back on Him. So that's what sin is, and that's what sin does. Thirdly, uh, we think the, the issue is the tree. You know, we think if God had not put the tree in the garden, there wouldn't have been a problem. But that's not true. The reality is that, as I said at the beginning, the, the, the thing, the problem was in the heart of man. You see, man did not need the tree to decide he could be self-governed and self-ruled. All the tree did is made it outwardly obvious what they chose, right? Um, it's interesting when we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, it's interesting that already before they get to the tree, it's pretty clear that Eve was not really trusting God's judgment. Uh, there's not great devotion and loyalty to God already before they get to the tree, before the serpent comes along. You see, already man was trying to decide he could be God better than God could be God. That I could be God over my own life and God doesn't know what he's doing. Already those seeds were there. You see, the tree just made it evident. The tree just made it very clear where their heart was. Well, praise God, praise God, that he did not leave us there. Because the reality is, Adam and Eve represent every single one of us. The truth is, with or without a sin nature... You know, they didn't have a sin, sin nature, but they were stubborn people before sin. Self-ruled, self-governed, unwilling to live in a dependent, trusting relationship with God. Uh, we may be redeemed by Christ, and praise God, He has washed us and cleansed us. He has given us a new nature. But we've got to know that there is a part of us that just like Adam and Eve, is not easily led or governed, right? Right? Do we easily let God be God in our life? Or does pride and self-will make us say to God, God, what do you think you're doing telling me what to do? I know better for my own life than you do. One of the more dramatic instances of that in my own life was when I first, when God was first commanding me <laughs> Instructing me, calling me to be a pastor. And, uh, you know, I, I kept saying to God, if you love me, you would not ask me to do this. 
Right? If you knew it was good for me, God, you wouldn't drag me there because I don't want to do that. And, um, you know, it comes down to obedience. It comes down to faith. At some point I had to come into my life where I said, you know, God, I trust that you know better for my life than I know. You see, when we sin, every time we sin, what we're saying is, God, I don't believe you. I don't believe you really know what's best. I think I know what's better. Right? Okay? And the thing that, that damages it is that every relationship that's deep and significant is built on trust. Without trust, there is no relationship. Uh, God doesn't turn his back on us, but the relationship is broken when we do not trust him. Right? We must be in a relationship where we trust God so much that we will absolutely, without question, obey his commands because we know he's right and he has right to rule. Let's pray. Father, we do just thank you so much that you are creator God, sovereign, mighty, powerful. You are Lord. You are king. You are our great father. And Lord, we, we uh, thank you that Jesus came to restore all that was lost and broken in the garden. And we thank you that he has cleansed us of sin through his own blood on the cross. And yet, Lord, we know that even with the redeeming and restoring and saving work of Christ in our life, if we are honest, Lord, we know that there is a part of us that still is fiercely self-willed, independent. And Lord, we know that it's, it's hard to yield and walk in obedience to you. But Lord, it comes down to a matter of faith and trust. Lord, you don't call us to blind keeping of rules just to be good people. You call us to walk in a relationship with you of absolute trust and obedience where we demonstrate our true faith in you by doing exactly everything you ask. Uh, Lord, we, we ask forgiveness for where we daily take things into our own hands. We make up our own rules, and with our own wisdom, we decide what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what's better and what's best. Lord, help us put away that kind of life and take up a life where we absolutely seek you, seek nothing other than to walk in obedience to your perfect will, so that you would indeed be Lord in our life. Lord, give us strength by your power, by your spirit to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.